It's been a really torrid few weeks for the Prime Minister, Partygate, and it doesn't really seem to get much better. You see, it's not just the sheer number of parties that were held in and around Downing Street and indeed in central office too. And that's a problem, of course, because lawmakers cannot, absolutely cannot be seen to be lawbreakers. But it goes wider than that. It's a feeling that at all times the Prime Minister just simply hasn't level with us. There are many out there that think he simply hasn't told the truth. I've never seen the word lie associated with a serving Prime Minister as much as I have with Boris Johnson over the course of the last few weeks. And now there are six Tory MPs openly calling on him to resign. The Sutton Coalfield Conservative Association met and 10-0 they voted the Prime Minister ought to go. All of this may be about to get just a little bit worse because Dominic Cummings has put out a fresh piece of information tonight saying that Boris knew about the party, was invited to the party, accepted he'd go to the party and Dominic Cummings claims Boris Johnson lied to the House of Commons. If any of that is stood up by the Sue Gray report, then the Prime Minister would be in very real trouble. We'll talk in half an hour or so, to Andrew Bridgen, one of those six MPs calling on the PM to resign. We'll ask him for his reasoning. But over the weekend, Boris Johnson has rediscovered his inner conservative. Yes, absolutely. He's rediscovered the things that actually got him elected with an 80-seat majority. So we're not hearing the liberal greenie Boris. No, we're hearing the conservative Boris. We're told over the weekend that the BBC licence fee will be frozen for two years and that from 2027 there'll be a completely new, different funding model. Levelling up is back on the agenda. Expect some really huge announcements about money that'll get poured into the north of England in particular. But the big one, and there it is, it's on the front page of a time, PM calls in military to stem flow of migrants. Yes, he's called in the Royal Navy because Britannia rule the waves and that will stop everything. Now, this idea is very, very popular. Opinion polling of all voters shows 71% approve of the Royal Navy being sent in to deal with the Channel crisis. But there's a problem here. You see, all the Royal Navy can do, and they'll basically replace Border Force, they can patrol up and down the line 12 miles from the Kent and Sussex coast, but they can't go any further than that without French permission to go into their waters. And what are they going to do? Are they going to turn the boats around? Well, physically, to do that with rubber dinghies is impractical, frankly, pretty much impossible. Are they going to scoop up the migrants and take them back to France. Well, to begin with, we don't have a returns policy in place, so the French wouldn't want them. And if the Royal Navy were just to do it, well, it would cause a diplomatic incident. Now, I think, in the end, it's the solution, but there's no way, there's no way these are the terms of engagement for the Royal Navy. So all you're really doing is you are replacing one taxpayer-funded taxi service which is what Border Force have been, and replacing them with the Royal Navy. Yes, the Royal Navy will take the migrants on board, deposit them in Dover, and then we're told there's a strong possibility they could be flown off to Rwanda or Ghana for offshore 
processing. You will not see that happen in a month of Sundays. I can't even imagine the human rights lawyers rubbing their hands with glee at the moment as court case after court case would prevent people being flown to those countries. And even if they were, it would cost an absolute fortune. And before you know it, there'd be reports about bad things happening in the camp, bad health, bad food, people being predated upon. None of it's going to happen. So I put it to you, whatever the newspapers may say, however big the story is about the Royal Navy going into the English Channel, it makes no difference. And actually, in terms of the crisis, things got worse over this weekend. We learnt on Friday, late, that those that come into this country across the Channel and through other routes and are waiting for their asylum claims to be processed can now, after a year of being in the country, work legally. Not join the black market, but work legally by going into the care home sector. There is a big shortage of staff in the care home sector because something like 30 to 40,000 people have left the care homes as a result of not being vaccinated and they're gone. Now, <clears throat> the, the Migration Advisory Service that proposed this to the government says actually it should be reduced to six months. No need for a visa, no none whatsoever. Just illegally cross the channel, come into Britain and you will be able to find work. So the net effect of this weekend on a trade that saw over 28,000 people come to the UK last year, the net effect of the weekend is there are even bigger incentives to, for people to come, not fewer. That's all part of Operation Red Meat. I'm asking you, the audience question, will Operation Red Meat save Boris Johnson's career? Well, let me know, farage at gbnews.uk. Well, joining me now to discuss all of this is Steve Valdez-Simmons, Refugee and Migrants' Right Programme Director at Amnesty International. Good evening, Steve. Good evening. Do you agree with my analysis that sending people to Ghana and Rwanda is pretty unlikely to actually happen? I, I agree. It's very unlikely to happen, most importantly, because to persuade other countries to take responsibilities that are ours on top of their own. Let's face it, Rwanda already hosts a refugee population larger than ours, and it's a much smaller and incredibly poorer country by comparison. To persuade them to do this would cost enormous sums of money, as indeed the Australian example shows, even for them to receive a very small number of people. Uh, is there any evidence? I mean, all this stuff's you know, being, being pushed out from Downing Street to the newspapers, and it all makes for great front pages. Is there any evidence, Steve, that they've actually spoken to the governments of Rwanda and Ghana? Well, none that I'm aware is in the public domain, so I have absolutely no idea. But one thing is certainly in the public domain. There have been announcement after announcement after announcement, some of them quite incredible over the last two years, mainly from the Home Secretary, but also from the Prime Minister. And, and virtually none of these things have ever happened, mostly because most of them have been entirely impractical, entirely impossible to afford, and some of them have been recklessly dangerous, not to say unlawful. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're doing this, uh, Steve, because you know as well as I do uh, that in many parts of this country, uh, particularly the Brexit voting parts of this country, people thought we were going to get back control of the borders, and they see this being openly abused by criminal trade 
across the English Channel. So, I mean, you know, whatever your position on this, you must accept it is a real political issue in this country. Well, it's certainly a political issue, but it's one that ministers have ratcheted up. Let's remember that the number of people who actually crossed the channel to our asylum system last year, by all means, was essentially no different to about two years ago. It's true that a very much larger proportion of those people now do so by means that we could all see. And ministers immediately jumped on that and have made a great noise about it. And now they're making even more noise with the prospect of the Royal Navy patrolling the waters. Mm. But they've got no solutions to this because, quite frankly, they have taken the position of not explaining to the British public that actually little has changed over the last few years and not levelling the case that this country receives very few people seeking asylum. And unless and until we are to share our responsibilities, I'm afraid smugglers by dangerous journeys like these will continue to profit. But net migration, I mean, we saw some figures from the ONS last week that net migration, their forecast, will add 2.2 million to the population over the course of the next decade. So whether it's legal, whether it's illegal, the British population is rising very rapidly as a direct result of migration. I mean, we're 8 million more people now than we were at the turn of the century back in 2000. Um, and 84% of that rise is because of migration. I mean, can we just go on seeing the British population inexorably rise to 70, 75, or in time, 80 million? Does that actually make sense for us as a nation and for our quality of life? Well, I think there are all sorts of questions that can be asked about that in relation to our immigration rules, but none of them are addressed by the relatively small number of people who make these journeys to our asylum system. And quite frankly, taking responsibility for our asylum system would make virtually no impact on the sorts of numbers that you have mentioned. Yes, we do have significant numbers of people, have done for many years, although it goes up and down, of people who increase the population through our migration routes. We do that because we open up our immigration system to that, as indeed do most wealthy countries, indeed, most poor countries too. There are perfectly good economic reasons why we should wish to do so, not to mention certain well, family and social reasons too, but we can argue about those. Yeah, we Putting can. all this on the idea of the few people who make these crossings, which are basically the only well, means it's the visibility, of seeking asylum it? here, make, it is visibility, yes. Yeah, it's, it's the sheer really visibility. impact on the numbers you're talking. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I could, I, I could argue that actually an 8 million rise in the population has impacted housing, the NHS, and I could go on and on. But it's the visibility of the cross-channel um, issue. The, the, that's what's upset a lot of Brexit voters, a lot of whom voted for Boris in 2019. So in summation, replacing border force with the Royal Navy, will that make any difference at all? I can't see how it will. I, I don't, I mean, I agree with you. What is the Navy going to be able to do that border force cannot? Yes, they can patrol the waters. Yes, they can save lives. Thoroughly good thing if they were to do that. But in terms of being able to do anything about um, the fact that people are compelled to make these journeys to make asylum in this country, because well, they're not they compelled, make no, asylum they? by, they're not compelled. If they but, wish, know. They pay Let, let's be, th these young men, Steve, and let's remember it's 90% young men. These young men choose to pay criminal traffickers. 
because if they wish to make their asylum claim in this country, which they are perfectly entitled to do, this is the only means that is open to them. And since many of them have connections and indeed family in this country, it is perfectly legitimate that they should wish to do this. And since well, also their conditions in northern France are frankly appalling and unsafe, it is inevitable that they should feel compelled to take these desperate so you feel, So you feel it's legitimate to board a dinghy and to sail across the English Channel. You think that's a legitimate thing to do? Um, I don't just feel it. That is the international law position that this country not only signed up to, but effectively drafted with others and has maintained ever since. Because it is not required that you pre-authorise your route to seek asylum, and every country is required to take its share of responsibility into receiving people seeking asylum. And since the UK makes no provision whatsoever for anybody to be able to claim asylum but by getting here, and no visa is available for that, all you have left is dangerous journeys like this. Well, they're certainly happening, and 800 have come so far this year, double the number last year. Steve, Valdez Simmons from Amnesty International, thank you very much indeed this evening for your time. And in a sense, folks, even though I disagree hugely with Steve and Amnesty on this, but in a sense, he does actually have quite a powerful point, which is we are still signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights. We are still signed up with the United Nations to a 1951 definition of what makes a refugee. Both of those things are hopelessly out of date. We need Brexit phase two, changing the UN agreement, getting out of the European Convention. Otherwise, we will never, ever solve this problem. And a final point. Our Royal Navy has been driven down in size ever since the Conservatives came to power in 2010. We're going to put what's left of it in the English Channel to replace border force. When we're living in a world of increasing tensions, whether it's the Russian Navy, whether it's indeed the Chinese Navy, our Navy should not be doing this. Our Navy should be out there protecting us and global security. Well, the second part of the red meat that was thrown was Nadine Dorries on the TV licence fee. I feel it's completely and utterly outdated. I think modern streaming services should replace it. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Is Operation Red Meat enough to save Boris Johnson? And in particular, I was talking about the English Channel, the Royal Navy being sent in. We'll discuss the BBC in a moment. Peter says, let's hope Operation Red Meat goes down better with the public than Operation Red Wine, which they practised during the lockdowns. Very good. Oliver says, because nothing, nothing says principles better than suddenly enacting popular policies, you could have to introduce years, you could have done it years ago just to save your own skin. Yeah, he's rediscovered over the weekend his inner conservative. Patrick says, maybe he could consider actually getting Brexit done, all cutting, but this time getting it done properly. One viewer says he needs to end all COVID restrictions and ditch the green insanity. Not happening. Uh, it isn't going to happen. Derek says, of course it won't, but that won't matter as his followers 
will still make excuses and support him. And finally, Andrew says, Operation Dead Meat more like. It's a shame this was the only option left to Johnson as pretty pathetic Patel has used up all the other ones. Wow, there we are. Some quite strong words from GP News viewers there. Now, the BBC licence fee, I've objected to it for years and years and years. I do genuinely believe that much of the news output from the BBC is biased. I was infuriated Saturday week back by Nick Robinson on the Today programme, uh, giving a little, a little talk about me, uh, saying one or two things that I felt to be completely untrue. And I did, whilst the show was on air, text back and ask for corrections, but of course, that didn't happen. However, globally, the BBC is part of our soft power. The BBC World Service is looked up to in many countries in the world. So it's not as if we should close the whole institution down, but should we be taxing everybody £159 a year in a modern day when through streaming and the internet we choose what we do? I don't think so. But joining me now to discuss this after what Nadine Dorris said at the weekend, and remember, it's a two-year freeze on the amount you pay, and 2027 will end the current funding model. Jill Hind is Director of TV at Enders Analysis and previously Operations Director at Freeview. Jill, good evening. Good evening. So it really is outrageous, isn't it? You know, we effectively tax everybody in this country uh, to pay bloated salaries to a BBC model that's out of date with the modern world. That's a very powerful statement you've just made there. Uh, you say it's an outdated, outdated model. The whole ethos of public service broadcasting is to provide very good, high quality programming covering many, many different genres that is accessible to the whole of the UK population, free at the point of use. And it is providing genres that the, that the subscription service will never dream of supplying, whether it's news, whether it's current affairs, whether it's some of the documentaries and, of course, sports and all those sort of those programming that brings the whole culture together. But, Jill, when it comes to comedy, when it comes to drama, when it comes to sport, there are now dozens of companies out there providing those services and we opt to watch them and we pay, you know, a subscription fee or we pay £10 to watch a boxing match or whatever it is. I mean, we're living in a very different world, aren't we, to, 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 you know, to just two or three main TV channels. And consumers make those choices. There is a younger generation out there you know, perhaps the under 30s, the vast majority of them who frankly hardly ever watch the BBC. And yet, if they've got a TV in their house and they haven't paid the 159 quid, they will get hounded and frankly still treated as if they're criminals. OK, again, you've brought in many, many things there. Let's take this back a stage and actually say there are 8 million adults who either do not want to or cannot afford to pay for pay television, whether that's Sky or whether that's Virgin, or whether that's any of the SVOD services such as Netflix or Amazon channels. Now, if you break that down, there actually tend to be older people, 55 plus, and actually the majority of them are also uh, are less affluent, the uh, C2D in income. Uh, and so you say, why don't they pay for subscription services? Well, actually, even if you were to um, consider that, actually they don't provide this, this, the, the programming that these people want to watch. These people actually watch five hours. These people that cannot or don't want to pay for television watch five hours of television every day, which is two hours more than those that wish to pay for television in whichever format, whether it's Netflix or whether it's Sky. So it's two hours more per day that they watch than these people that can afford to pay for it. 
No, but they can watch TV News for free. They can watch Sky for free. They can watch ITV for free. They can't. They, they they can't watch Sky for free. They can watch GB News for free on D, on Freeview. You're right. Uh, as you mentioned, I was operations director there. Sky News. They can, they watch, can watch some programming. Sorry. Well, Sky News is free. But anyway, let's let let's not quibble about that. The point I'm making is there are free choices of television for people to watch. Um, and, I, and I just wonder, Jill, as I say, I think with drama, I think with comedy, those things can be provided virtually anywhere. I think the same goes for sport. I get your point about those who are less well-off, although, frankly, the BBC doesn't have much sport these days, really. But when it comes to, when it comes to, you know, the way in which we've treated people over the years, the harassment people are putting, are, are put under uh, to pay this fee, you can probably understand why it's as unpopular as it is. But one of the things that genuinely enrages people is, and I'm not even going to say perceived, I think without doubt, a metropolitan, left of centre, liberal bias that goes through the whole of BBC programming. Why on earth should people living in the shires pay for that? Again, you're making very sweeping statements there and you've brought up many things. Uh, when you talk about whether the BBC is impartial or not, actually Ofcom, who regulates uh, the, the, the broadcasting sector, actually when they've come out with some reports, sorry? Sort of. I mean, up until a couple of years ago, the BBC was self-regulating, weren't they? Uh, you're right. But uh, if you look at the Ofcom research that actually 58% of adults have a positive impression of the BBC. It came out during the whole of the COVID crisis, of course, which we're not over yet, that the BBC was the most trusted source of news of any media channel whatsoever. So people do appreciate the BBC and they do and they do watch it. Uh, well, you're also talking about uh, about subscription versus uh, whether we should pay for a subscription and people get harassed, harassed sorry, for, uh, for supposedly not paying their licence fee. Well, I, I noted Nadine Doris in a tweet that she put out this weekend where she talked about actually we're going to freeze the licence fee and it's the very last one. She also talked about bailiffs coming around hassling people. That does not happen. It is a it is a criminal offence. It, which if it's so bailiffs are not allowed round to someone to someone's house and and sort of harass as you so call it. Mm. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot a lot of things are pointed out that are wrong about the BBC and the license fee and how that money is collected. And it's it's like yourself. You've just pointed it pointed it out. You're incorrect in that point. It's not the bailiffs that can come round. And if there's a fee, well, if, that, you, if you're not was... paying that and it goes to a civil court then actually your fee that you, the, the, the fine that you may pay, if you have to pay one, is actually related to your income as well. Well, I didn't make the bailiff point. What I would say to you is the fact that 40% of the population don't think the BBC is a reliable source of news actually of itself should ring, I think, huge alarm uh, bells. But, but, but Jill, finally, finally, finally this, this round ends in 2027. Are you saying that it makes sense to continue with this model into the 2030s? What I'm saying is that we've got time to look and see what the best model is. It may be, this, it may be a licence fee, it may be some sort of apathetic tax, such as they have in Germany. But when we're talking about things of subscription, which you've been discussing, actually having a subscription BBC is very difficult technically. You mentioned that you're on free-to-air, on Freeview. If you were to have a subscription BBC, you'd need to put conditional access in every single television in the UK. That's the equivalent of going through yet again another digital switchover. So everyone would have to buy a new piece of equipment. 
Or alternatively, the government would have to fund that. That's really not going to happen. And if you go back to digital switchover, when we went from five channels to, to 30, 50, 70, yep. depending where you're looking at that, yep. then actually there was a reason for people to do that. They'd go out and get extra choice. So they were willing to pay that. And also the TVs that we used to have prior to that were very, very large. If you remember, they used to sit sort of on your, on your they used to sit well away from your wall because they were so bad. Yep. They went so back so far. We've now got nice small TVs. So people were willing to fund that. They're not going to do that. It also costs the government five hundred million pounds to do that switchover. You're also forgetting well, about well, the BBC Radio. You're forgetting about BBC Radio. You can't make that subscription. No, that would be very difficult. I agree with that. Although I have to say, the amount of bandwidth they've got makes it very, very difficult for some of their commercial competitors. Jill, come back and talk to us again. This debate will run and run over the course of the next few years. Of that, I've got no doubt. Now, my what the farage moment with Australia over the weekend wasn't that Novak Djokovic was deported. I thought he was going to be. You see, ultimately, Tennis Australia and Victoria State were overruled by the federal authorities. What was astonishing, on behalf of Minister Hall, the immigration minister, who does have sweeping powers, and by the way, I support strong borders, of course I do, but this wasn't about borders. No, one of the arguments put by, by his lawyers was there was a danger that if Djokovic stayed in Australia, that he would be a danger to public health. Well, him himself directly, obviously that would be a laughable idea. But it was said he could become an icon, an icon for freedom of choice. And that apparently, in modern day, authoritarian Australia is a bad thing. People are not to have freedom of choice. And their stats on vaccinations are pretty amazing. 92.6% of people are fully vaccinated. So we're dealing here with one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. Well, they've locked themselves away. They've locked themselves down. They've got themselves fully vaxxed. And yet there were 55,000 new cases of covid in the last 24 hours. So it doesn't really seem to be working. But an indication of the kind of country Australia's becoming comes particularly in Western Australia. The Premier there, Mark McGowan, appears to be totally out of control, completely drunk with power as he pursues an impossible COVID zero policy. He's told people that new rules and restrictions will be in place for years and he's announced that Western Australians not vaccinated against COVID will be banned from nearly activity, nearly every activity outside their home from the 31st of January. And it's this I've been warning against for the last three months here on GB News. It is the idea that we relegate millions of people in our countries in a sort of modern day updated form of apartheid to being second class citizens. Australia is becoming rapidly an authoritarian, and I'm sad to say, rather unpleasant place. Now, one place that has locked down and did so before Christmas was the Netherlands. Mark Rutter locking the country down. Uh, and very interesting what's been happening there over the weekend. There have been, over the weekend, very large-scale protests taking place in Dutch cities. Here is just one of them. And quite significant numbers of people turning up at these protests. But more significantly, in major cities 
all over the Netherlands, dozens of bar owners, cafe owners, or the Dutch equivalent of publicans, have literally, literally ignored the government's closure orders, and people have turned up and they've been eating, drinking, and making merry. I sense the fact that the police chose over the weekend not to enforce the law against these bars, against these restaurants, against these clubs, says something. It says the Dutch have had enough of the Prime Minister locking them down. Uh, and none of this, whether it's getting jabbed two, three, four times, or locking people down, destroying lives, none of this stops people from catching the virus, a point that I keep endlessly making. Not everybody, I know, wants to hear it. And my final what the farage. An academic bias report by Legatum, who interestingly are investors in GB News, shows some pretty amazing statistics when it comes to university lecturers and university professors. And just have a look at that graph. Just have a look at those that are left of centre, are very left of centre, and now look at those who would give our youngsters a more conservative view of the world. And it explains the sheer level of, of indoctrination that our young people are going through. I bet all of you know somebody in your family or a close friend's family where their son and daughter have come back from university being virtually different people. Uh, something has got to be done with further education. It really has. It's open. The GB News Tavern is open. And joining me on Talking Pints is Member of Parliament for the Conservative Party, Andrew Bridget. Welcome, Andrew. Cheers. To Talking Pints. So it's just another normal day in number 10, then? Well, <laughs> interesting, isn't it? So you're one of six MPs that's publicly come out and called on Boris Johnson to resign. I've spoken to several who, in private, say exactly the same thing, but, you know, they're, they're, they're worried about what their local association may think, although we saw the Sutton Coalfield vote the other night, the committee 10 nil for him to go. What made you decide to break cover last week? I think the Prime Minister's position had become untenable. What the, uh, the revelations I predicted last Wednesday weren't going to stop, so the problem just gets worse. Yeah. The government's paralysed. The Prime Minister can't function as he needs to. The government can't function, uh, and that makes the whole position untenable. And... The evidence we've seen, what I've seen, is it appears that Boris Johnson and the clique around him in Number 10, they can do what they want. And during lockdown, the rest of us had to do what we're told. That's unacceptable to me. And you didn't get invited to any of them? Um, I, no, and, I, and, <laughs> and it's unacceptable to me. It's unacceptable for my constituents. Um, and what it isn't, Nigel, is it's not levelling up, is it, in my book? No, that's a very fair point. Now... Some fresh revelations out, or accusations, I should say, more accurately. Dominic Cummings is now making fresh allegations, as I understand it, that Boris Johnson knew about the invitation to the big, you know, bring-your-own-booze party. But more seriously, and I've been watching what the Prime Minister has been saying in the House of Commons, you know, there was no party when it was about the 18th of December. He didn't say parties. So he's obviously been very careful about what he's been saying all the way through this. Cummings is, tonight, accusing the Prime Minister of lying to the House of Commons. You've seen that, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's tremendously serious. 
clearly someone's lying, either Dominic Cummings lying or the Prime Minister's lying. And quite honestly, if it is the Prime Minister, as far as I'm concerned, that's career-ending. You do not lie to Parliament. That is a resig re resignation matter. So Sue Gray will report, I don't know, is it next week? Is it the week after? Well, I don't know, because, I mean, I think she's probably got more work to do than she started with, because the, <laughs> the accusations keep piling yeah. up. And, and some of it, I mean, Keir Starmer was, has, has been pictured in an office having a drink. He, he was on a constituency visit. The Daily Mail are screaming for him to apologise. But, I mean, he was having a beer, but it could have been a cup of tea, couldn't it? I mean, not, not everything, not the whole list of 14 or 15 of these now that it is. They weren't all parties, were they? I think we're up to about 20 now, aren't we? Oh, are we? I I'm think we're so 17, I'm 18 so or 20. <laughs> um, well, clearly, the Prime Minister wasn't at all of them, but no. they were going on... In government, a lot of them in number 10. And as far as I'm concerned, when you run an organisation, you set the culture. It's no good moaning about the culture after you've been the boss for two years. You set the culture. I've been talking tonight about this red meat strategy and suddenly all the conservative things that you were elected on have come back on the agenda. We're not talking about net zero today. Um, you know, the Royal Navy going into the Channel and everything else. I know you're a fairly... Well, I would say in some ways traditional conservative in the sense that you believe in free markets and enterprise and all of those things. Is Boris Johnson and actually many of those around him, are they actually conservatives, Andrew? Well, what's I think annoyed me is he now wants to deliver a lot of the things that the backbenchers have been calling for, but they're actually the things that we promised in our manifesto at the general election. And to dole mm. them out now is almost like giving out sweeties to placate children, but they're sweeties you had in your pocket all the time and the sweeties you promised us a long time ago. Why now? His, why, why haven't we done this before? Because his priorities changed. Suddenly, net zero, combating global warming, a, a, a raft of social issues, these became the main things, didn't they? And I don't remember us promising any of those in our manifesto. That isn't what we were ele elected on. Um, and it's been tremendously frustrating. I've found myself as a sort of middle-of-the-road Thatcherite, uh, unable to vote with the government on numerous occasions. I didn't vote for the Owen Paterson debacle before no. Christmas. I didn't vote for the national insurance increases. They need to be reversed. That's a tax on jobs. Um, and uh, I didn't vote for Plan B. That was completely unnecessary and probably cost the economy around about £30 billion, which would have been very handy to reverse the national insurance increases and help people out with the cost. One of the arguments, Andrew, one of the arguments as to why more MPs haven't broken cover is because they say there is no obvious alternative. When you look at the names that are currently, and of course we never know because John Major came from nowhere through the middle. Margaret Thatcher came from nowhere through the middle. And, and a lot could change. You know, a lot could change. But assuming there is a leadership election this summer, which I, and I, I think it will be, unless something devastating happens after May, after those local elections is my guess, but I mean, who knows? When you look at Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak, are you really going to get your kind of conservative with them? Well, we have a system for voting and selecting uh, a new leader of the Conservative that Party. That's what I asked you. I, well, my, 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 views, uh, my views are probably slightly controversial. I, no, I feel very never. Let, I feel slightly let down by the cabinet that things have been allowed to go on which shouldn't have gone on, and people have not walked, people have not complained. 
And quite honestly, I'd like to see someone from outside the cabinet to be the next leader of the Conservative Party. Um, we haven't got that long until the next general election. I think it needs to be someone who's known for a record of being a Conservative and obviously someone with the, the highest integrity. Well, let's wait and see what happens. Now, talking of integrity, I, I turned my newspapers today to see the name Andrew Bridgen up in lights. A company in Ghana uh, who you had asked some questions on behalf of, some complicated tax affairs to do with forestry. And, you know, the story is there. Bridgin acts for this company and then receives money. So you're in trouble too. Yeah, that's, that's complete fiction, Nigel. I mean, look at the timing. I could criticise number 10 last week and I'm, I'm smeared in the Times on a Monday morning. As a colleague, when I walked into the tea room this morning, said, they're not even the subtle, are they? Don't even wait a few days before they smear you now. Um, so how do you fight back against this? Well, I'll just tell you the truth. Um, Mere Plantations have got a sales function in my constituency. They've got an issue over... They were regarded growing tre trees um, in Africa. Um, that was regarded by anybody from the tax office as it must be a scam. They'd offered to fly tax inspectors out there to inspect it. They said, oh, you're trying to bribe us. They came to me and said, if we took you out there and showed you the 16,000 acres of teak trees we've been planting for the last eight years, you met with the Ghanaian Forestry Commission and they guaranteed it, and then you go and see the High Commission. And you did go out. And I went out there, declared it all, saw the trees, went and had a meeting with the uh, High Commission, our High Commission in Accra, uh, the, uh, the business uh, attaché, and I said, why have I had to fly to Accra to look at a UK company with £160 million pounds worth of exports for UK out of those trees in, in Africa, well, I've had to come and verify all these trees for the inland revenue when you should have done it. And he said, I don't have a budget. I said, well, if you don't have a budget to visit the biggest plantation uh, in, in, of British trees in West Africa, what's your point? And to add insult to injury, I went then with Mia to a rather nice restaurant in Accra, mm. and who walked in ten minutes after with a big group of colleagues it was the business attaché. I did ask him then, have you got a budget for this? And he said he had. Well, I complained so, to the minister when I got back, and so I can tell you now, he was removed from office. So straight talking, this is the last we're going to hear of it, yeah? Yes. All right. Now, Andrew, I can't work out really how you're a Conservative MP. I find it very odd. Uh, you didn't go to Eton. You didn't go to Oxford. Comprehensive school boy. You didn't do PPE. No. Uh, you didn't then go work in a research office and spend your entire life in Westminster, in the bubble, you actually, I mean, and this, I know many would look down upon you for this, but you actually had a job before politics. Tell us all about it. Um, my father was uh, disabled when he was 48. Um, I set up a business with my little brother with a £1,000 and built it into a £30 million turnover food business based in my constituency, employing... 300 people. So um, food processing, yeah? Food processing, nothing sexy. Potatoes and prepared vegetables. Uh, but it's, um, it, it's a very regular business. Food industry is very stable. And it's very cooperative as well. So you basically just, as long as you do the right job, you're just pushing food into, into the, the pipeline and you for were, consumers. You know, you reached some good positions with the Institute of Directors and all the rest Regional of it. Regional chairman of the Institute of Directors. And um, I was voted Young Executive of the UK when I was young, in 2000. So you were making good money? Yes, I took a very, very big pay cut to be an MP. You see, people don't believe that. I know. People just When don't people on that. the doorsteps occasionally will say, you're, you're all here just doing it for the money, I, I, I do get a bit peeved at times, but 
And what I mean, like you, I was in business. I was in the commodities business in the city. It's different business, but still in the private sector. Um, and I got involved in politics, you know, for a passion. And for me, it was the European thing. And you feel that very strongly too. One of the Spartans, and thank goodness that May deal didn't go through, uh, which made a big difference to the future of British politics. But what motivated you? Because you know, I built a you, you I, I, built, I built a factory in Northwest Leicestershire, and through my links to the institute of directors, I knew was told that the the um, the planning authority I was building my factory in was the least business friendly in the whole of the East Midlands, and so. We planned a political coup. I managed to persuade lots of friends to stand for the district council. The deal was, you stand for the district council, I'll help you get in. We'll take control of the council for the first time in 40 years from the Labour Party. I'll stand for MP. And the rest is history, Nigel. We had the second biggest swing in the country in North West Central against Labour. So I turned 4,500 Labour to 7,500 Conservative in one jump. My majority has gone up. We've delivered higher growth, highest growth outside London and the South East. And I think 2019, before the election, it was the happiest place to live in the East Midlands. I, we're not going to put all that down to Andrew Bridget, let me tell you. No, it, no, no got, of course not. But <laughs> it, 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 was, it was not all down to me. My, my constituents are really hardworking and really good people, but it probably wouldn't have happened without And me. it's a lovely part of the world, too. It's a lovely part yeah, of the world. No, no, very, very decent people. they very straight-talking and... That's the sort of MP they want. You've been in Parliament for over a decade. Yes. From what I can see, you've got no ministerial ambitions. I was offered one ministerial role. That was by David Cameron's administration. If I'd campaigned for Remain, ah. I could have been the immigration minister. I said, you really hate me, don't you? So you want the immigration <laughs> minister with no control over immigration. I said, I'm sorry, I'm campaigning for leave. And I led the leave campaign in the East Midlands. Yeah, I know you did. And you felt it very, very strongly. Has it? You know, you, you've been in this a decade, elected for a decade. You are one of the higher profile backbenchers in the sense that you're prepared to speak out on a number of issues. And, you know, Bridgin pops up on the TV on a regular basis and some people like it and some don't. And hey, that's the way it is. Is it worth it? Is politics worth it for you? There are huge rewards. Um, and however long I'm in, I'm in politics and whatever position I might achieve in the future or not, the most rewarding thing will be being one of only two MPs who fought for 10 years and got justice for the sub-postmasters. The biggest miscarriage of justice in this country's history. When people were telling me, no, no, no you're barking up the wrong tree, Andrew. This computer system's fantastic. Look, all these, these sub-postmasters are all crooks. And they weren't, Nigel. They were all honest people. It's one of the biggest, mis one of the biggest miscarriages we've ever had, isn't it? It's, it is the biggest miscarriage. It is the biggest. Yeah. And, and putting that right, and we're still working on the compensation for them, and it's actually with a, a Labour MP, it's um, Kevin Jones, the MP for yeah, yeah. Durham North. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've stuck together for ten years on that, and we've got there, and, and no-one can take that away from you. And there are great rewards in, in business, and they're all monetary, yeah. um, but there are other rewards in politics Interesting. which you can't put a price on, and that's one of them. So Bridgen's staying in politics for the, for, for the foreseeable, yeah? The foreseeable future is only ever the next election, as you know, Nigel. Yeah, I think in North West Leicestershire you're pretty safe, really, don't you? If they want me, um, I must stay. To get kicked out, you'd have to do something really dreadful. Like be disloyal to the Prime Minister. Well, or, my, or... my inbox over the weekend, I, I suspect most Conservative MPs' inboxes, maybe most MPs' inboxes, I mean, I've, I had a thousand emails on that topic on Saturday alone. I put my head over the parapet and it was 80-20 yeah. um, 
against the Prime Minister's position. Do you like Boris? As a person, great guy. Um, great guy. And I voted for him um, and campaigned for his leadership. But I didn't campaign... I didn't think that he was going to be brilliant at running the country. I knew he could win us an election. I knew he'd get Brexit done, uh, which he did. But I thought it would be rather the same sort of administration he had... Um, in London. In London, where he'd have very, very capable people yeah. doing all the things he doesn't like doing, doing the detail, doing the heavy lifting, let Boris do what he's good at, what Boris is good at, which is winning elections and, and selling messages. And quite honestly, I think that's not happened. Andrew Bridgen, thank you for joining me on Talking Pints. Thank you. Thank you. Now, it's Barrage the Farage, but I'm keeping Bridge in here because sometimes these questions are so fiendish that I can't possibly deal with them without passing the ball along the line, so keep concentrating. Right, here goes. Frank asks me, will Boris abandon his sudden Conservative policies again once he wins back his base? I'm afraid you're basically saying that this Prime Minister is insincere. It's an astonishing thing to say. Andrew, what does he really believe in? I mean, does, does he believe in the Royal Navy and the Channel and stopping this, or does he believe in net zero? And, and is our question a right to be that cynical? Yes, probably. I, I think if we're not careful, I think what we think is Boris believes in himself, and that's just not going to watch. If Cummings is right, and let's face it, everything Cummings has said so far has pretty much added up, um, the Prime Minister is in absolutely terminal problems. He could be in big trouble. Yes, I mean, and, and, and that's the point. If he has lied to the House of Commons, we'll never find out. But it all looks very cynical. And we, and we get told, of course, that people are going to be sacked in Downing Street to save his own position. Mick asks, do you think the Navy should drag boats in the Channel back to French waters? The Australian Navy did this, but they were sturdier wooden boats. Turning around and dragging dinghies, difficult. No, you've got to physically put the people up and take them back to Calais Harbour. It will cause an international incident, but I tell you what, it'll start working. Finally, Dave asks, the government are freezing the BBC licence fee for two years. Are they right? They are right, aren't they? They are. To start. They are, but, I mean, the, the idea that we're, we're going to get rid of the licence fee in 2027, that's five years away. I know. The licence fee will be redundant by this. It's actually redundant now, isn't it? It's well, I think so. I think so. 